hppodcraft.com. In Styria, we, though by no means magnificent people, inhabit a castle or schloss. A small income in that part of the world goes a great way. Eight or nine hundred a year does wonders. Scantily enough, ours would have answered among wealthy people at home. My father is English, and I bear an English name, although I never saw England. But here in this lonely and primitive place, where everything is so marvellously cheap, I really don't see how ever so much more money would at all materially add to our comforts or even luxuries. My father was in the Austrian service and retired upon a pension and his patrimony and purchased this feudal residence and the small estate on which it stands, a bargain. Nothing can be more picturesque or solitary. It stands on a slight eminence in a forest. The road, very old and narrow, passes in front of its drawbridge, never raised in my time, and its moat, stocked with perch, and sailed over by many swans, and floating on its surface, white fleets of water lilies. Over all this, the schloss shows its many windowed front, its towers, and its gothic chapel. That picturesque opening is from Sheridan Lafneu's Carmilla. Yes, a gothic chapel and a gothic story. Carmilla, so you settled on pronouncing it Carmilla, finally? Yeah, well, I'm going with consensus on this, but mm-hmm. the story will always be Carmilla to me because our friend Tony Lopez, Tony was our guest host on House on the Borderlands. That's right. He's the one that recommended this story to me years ago, and I read mm-hmm. it and loved it and thought it was great. And he pronounced it Carmilla. So that's just how you heard it first. Right, but Tony speaks Spanish, so I'm sure that's part of why he saw it that way. But also, Carmilla and Carmilla. <laughs> you think it sounds sexier the other way? Carmilla. Carmilla. <laughs> I hear you. Well, to be fair, there are a limited number of anagrams you can make out of the name Carmilla. Yeah, that's true. And as we'll discover in this story, <laughs> some of them no. will be used. But it only makes sense that if she pursued a lot of different identities, at one point she'd have to kill it with the anagrams and just go with different pronunciations. So I'm sure she's been Carmilla and Carmilla. Well, if she wanted to have like kind of a Spanish vibe, you know, she yeah. could totally go Carmilla. There's no reason why she couldn't. I'm sure she's also been Carmilla, as I suggested. <laughs> but yeah, everything I've read and heard, everybody says the lady is Carmilla. Yeah. And, and that includes a number of goth songs that I combed through this week, hoping <laughs> I got on Spotify and I just looked up the name and I was like, hopefully I'll find some goofy 50s, because it's Marches for Vampire. Vampires and we like to have some goofy right. music. Well, no, no, it's marches for Dracula's. Marches for Dracula's. Thanks for correcting me on that. <laughs> but, but literally, if you've written a song called Carmilla, then you're probably already on your second mess shirt because there was That's no true. fun, goofy 50s version. It was all God. The author, Sharon Lafanu, was mentioned in H.P. Lovecraft's supernatural horror literature, and that's why we decided to discuss it on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You're at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you might also recognize that voice is another lackey, Rachel Lackey. Rachel, bringing it in at the top. She's going to be with us through the story, right? Throughout. Yeah, absolutely. H.P. Lovecraft doesn't really mention this story exactly, but he does mention Lafanu. And not necessarily favorably. No. We've covered Lafanu previously. We did a story called Green Tea quite some time ago. Yeah. And we talked about it then, but just to refresh folks, in supernatural horror and literature, he's got a section on the aftermath of gothic fiction. Mm-hmm. And in it, he says, the romantic, semi-gothic, quasi-moral tradition was carried down the 19th century by such authors as Joseph Sheridan Lafanu, and then he lists a few others like Conan Doyle and H.G. Wells. 
Indeed, we may say that this school still survives, for to it clearly belongs such of our contemporary horror tales as specialize in events rather than atmospheric details, address the intellect rather than the impressionistic imagination, cultivate a luminous glamour rather than a malign tensity or psychological verisimilitude, and take a definite stand in sympathy with mankind and its welfare. It has its undeniable strength, and because of its human element, commands a wider audience than does the sheer artistic nightmare. If not quite so potent as the latter, it is because a diluted product can never achieve the intensity of a concentrated essence. <laughs> so, Lovecraft wasn't necessarily a fan of this sexy gothic kind of stuff because no. it does have Christian moral undertones. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if he even ever read Carmilla, to be honest. S.T. Joshi seems to think that Lovecraft made a critical misjudgment of Le Fanu early on. He believes it was because he'd read Le Fanu's novel House by the Churchyard and he found it tedious. So other than Green Tea, I know he read that. He pretty much left the author alone, which mm -hmm. was a mistake. Yeah, this one is pretty seminal. It's been said to be a big influence on Bram Stoker's writing of Dracula. And this predates that story by 26 years. And there are similarities to Dracula in the story, definitely. You can see where the influence was, particularly on that deleted chapter from Dracula, which later became Dracula's guest. Right. Big similarities there. But the story is pretty unique as well. I do think it has some weird elements, aside from its melodramatic basis, that I think Lovecraft would have appreciated. Yeah. I've really been taking a swim in Lake Carmilla the last couple of days. Uh, <laughs> this is this is my first reading of it. I finished the book yesterday morning, and then last night I watched The Vampire Lovers, which is yes. the 1970 Hammer Films adaptation of this book. Mm -hmm. I really dug it. The movie is a pretty faithful adaptation, although I definitely recommend reading this book first. It breaks the story structure in the film and makes it linear. Mm -hmm. This book is not linear, that the story is also nested, which is definitely something that's not in the film. Right. Carmilla was first published as a serial in The Dark Blue, which was a London-based literary magazine that was only around from 1871 to 73. Le Fanu collected Carmilla later in an anthology called In a Glass Darkly, which contained five of his gothic and mystery stories. That's where Green Tea appeared, and we mm -hmm. talked about the wraparound narrative in that episode. Right. Specifically that we didn't like it. However, it does introduce this cool character, Dr. Heselius. Folks say that he is the first occult doctor in literature. Uh, which I don't really have any evidence to refute. I think well, he predates all the other occult doctors we talk about. Yeah. And if you'll remember from Green Tea, that doctor has died. He's left behind his casebook for a younger doctor to go through. Now, in Carmilla, in the prologue, this doctor presents Carmilla and says, this is an account from Dr. Heselius' casebook. Also in the prologue, the doctor says, I tried to get a hold of the narrator of this account, but she's passed away. And that narrator would be our protagonist, Laura. The prologue suggests that this first-person account was some kind of correspondence between Dr. Heselius and the narrator. It's very clumsy because as you read the story, it becomes clear that it's being narrated to another woman and that she's somebody who is a town girl. Frequently, the narrator comments that she wouldn't understand the isolation of her life because she's a woman from town. So it really was just something that was sandwiched in for that anthology. Yet, the prologue still appears in published forms of the book, which makes it kind of confusing and unnecessary because they don't revisit it again. So if you get that prologue when you're reading it, it's not really that crucial. Right. I I'm going on too long. Just one more quick thing and we can dive in. We didn't do much bio for Lefanu before. He's an Irish writer, Victorian era. Our friend M.R. James is really responsible for cheerleading his work in the 20th century because it had fallen out of popularity for a while, though in his lifetime he was a very popular writer. That's enough for now. We'll be covering Camilla for three weeks so we can add bits here and there. Let, let, let's just get into it. Right. So the story starts off with the narrator, this woman, Laura, talking about where she grew up, which is uh, Styria, or if you are German, Steiermark. Right. It's located in southeast Austria. Mm -hmm. She lives in a castle or Schloss, as it's called. Her mother was Austrian and her father was English. He was in service to Austria, but is now retired. We're not sure right. if he was military service or political service. It doesn't really go into details about it. Mm -hmm. Laura's mother died when she was a baby. And because of her father's English background, they do keep it up around the house. Although it's also a hodgepodge of German and French, etc. Right. 
Now, Styria, where they live, it's of course famous for another reason. It's the birthplace and childhood home of a certain former Mr. Universe. Schwarzenegger? That's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger is from Styria. So I'm very interested in talking to him because maybe we could do a new Carmilla adaptation for film. All right. He, he could star in it. He could be the he could be the main character. He could be Laura? He could be Carmilla. I think he'd be a better Laura, actually. I don't know, man. I mean, nobody thought he could be governor of California. Why can't he be Carmilla? You know what? We'll have to agree to disagree on this one. We'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to revisit this question as we go through the novel <laughs> when it's appropriate. So at the time that the story is taking place, Laura is 19 years old. She lives in the castle with her father and mm-hmm. a mess of other servants. But for some reason, those people don't count. She even says that. Yeah, but they don't They don't count. So let's not talk about that. But she also has two ladies that take care of her. Madame Paradon, who was the one that really took care of her, kind of her nursemaid, and Mademoiselle de la Fontaine, which is um, going to be my porn name. Mademoiselle de la Fontaine? No. <laughs> de la Fontaine is going to be my oh, porn Oh, just name. de la Fontaine. Yeah, it'll be like Clint or Jake. <laughs> De La Fontaine. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, Mademoiselle De La Fontaine is a finishing school tutor. So she teaches her how to be a proper lady. Now, Laura never really had very many visitors her own age. Occasionally they would come and they would stay for maybe a week or two and then they would go. They would be friends of her father's children, what have you. Basically, it's cheap to live in Styria. And if you have a few bucks, you can get an old castle, which uh, <laughs> that's what. <laughs> Just a couple bucks. Yeah. But she says it. You're paraphrasing there. She doesn't say a couple of bucks. She says it's very cheap, though. And guy who's retired from the service can buy a castle, which is pretty extraordinary. Sure. So the forest around the castle extends for about 15 miles in both directions. Their closest neighbor is this guy, General Spielsdorf, and he's 20 miles to the right. Wow. Now, there is a village only three miles away in the direction of General Spielsdorf, but it's uninhabited. Mm-hmm. She says it's a ruined village with its quaint little church, now roofless, in the aisle of which are the moldering tombs of the proud family of Karnstein, now extinct, who once owned the equally desolate chateau, which in the thick of the forest overlooks the silent ruins of the town. Mm-hmm. Respecting the cause and the desertion of the striking and melancholy spot, there is a legend which I shall relate to you another time. So Laura tells us about this strange thing that happened to her when she was a kid. It stuck with her her whole life. I can't have been more than six years old when one night I awoke and looking round the room from my bed, failed to see the nursery maid. Neither was my nurse there and I thought myself alone. I was not frightened for I was one of those happy children who are studiously kept in ignorance of ghost stories, of fairy tales, and of all such lore as makes us cover up our heads when the door cracks suddenly, or the flicker of an expiring candle makes the shadow of a bedpost dance upon the wall nearer to our faces. I was vexed and insulted at finding myself, as I conceived, neglected, and I began to whimper, preparatory to a hearty bout of roaring, when to my surprise, I saw a solemn but very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady who was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and lay down beside me on the bed and drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately delightfully soothed and fell asleep again. I was wakened by a sensation as if two needles ran into my breast very deep at the same moment and I cried loudly. The lady started back with her eyes fixed on me and then slipped down upon the floor and, as I thought, hid herself under the bed. Oh man, 
That is creepy. It's pretty creepy, sinking in under the bed like that. So Laura screams, and the nurses come in to check on her. She tells them what happened, but they don't see any marks on her chest, so they think she was just dreaming. Though one of the nurses says that there is a warm spot and an indentation in the bed right next to her. As if somebody had been lying there. Her father tried to tell her it was a dream, but she felt differently. The following day, the servants got a priest to come and say some blessings, so... The servants weren't so sure that it was a dream. They felt, you know, let's just make sure. Let's get the priest in here. For a long time, that was it. Nothing ever like that happened again. And that's the first chapter. And once again, as in Of One Blood, we're treated to a foreshadowing vision early on in the story of the two characters who are going to meet. But this one is interesting because, and we could talk about it later, but it's also possible that it was a real visitation. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. So let, let's touch on that at the end if we can. Now in chapter two, Laura is 19, like we said at the beginning, and her father is expecting a guest, a general, to stay with them, and he's got a daughter that is Laura's age. This is General Spielsdorf, whom I mentioned, but uh, although it's not his daughter. Oh, it's his niece. That's right. It's his niece and a ward. Uh, since it's so lonely at the castle, she's really looking forward to this. Laura's never met this girl before, but she still is looking to hang out with somebody her own age. You know, braid some hair, listen to some Duran Duran, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, you're making a joke, but they do braid each other's hair in, the, in this, <laughs> in this book. And they do listen to some Duran Duran. Yeah, that's true as well. But Laura, <laughs> Laura's father says, oh, he's not coming. It's a good thing that you never actually met that girl. And Laura's like, well, why is that? And she goes, oh, she's, oh, man, I didn't tell you, did I? Uh, she's, she's dead. Yeah. And that's why he's not coming. He totally forgot to tell her. He forgot to tell her? <laughs> I know. It was funny when he drops that. He didn't even need to tell her that he forgot to tell her. But he did. But it's important that the general, this was his niece, an award, because somehow it makes it sadder and harder to accept that she died because there's this trust that's broken when you're caring for somebody else's child and you fail. And I think that's a heavy weight that plays over this whole story. Hmm. The idea of protecting somebody that's not yours and what a responsibility that is. So Laura's father says that the general seems really upset because the letter seems a bit crazy to him. And he hands it to his daughter to read. Uh, he has no problem sharing it with her. There's a bit of, darling, don't bother your head with all these things in the story. But generally, the father and daughter have a pretty good relationship. Laura's more included in what's going on. She's not kept in the dark too much. She's not sheltered. She's not sheltered like most women are in these stories we read. Some of the more interesting bits of the letter that she reads, she reads the whole thing, but I'm not going to go through all of it. He says, I have lost her and now learn all too late. I thought I was receiving into my house innocent gaiety, a charming companion for my lost Bertha. Heavens, what a fool I've been. I devote my remaining days to tracking and extinguishing a monster. I am told I may hope to accomplish my righteous and merciful purpose. At present, there is scarcely a gleam of light to guide me. The general's going to be on a mission, collecting information, looking for this monster, and he mm -hmm. won't be coming around to their castle for another two months. And this, of course, really bums Laura out. So Laura's father, Madame Paradon and Mademoiselle de la Fonte, decide to go out for a walk, a moonlit mm -hmm. stroll. And the moon is full, and it's a nice night, uh, but it's a very melancholy walk, probably because they just got a letter that this girl was dead. And there's this great imagery of mist climbing around the grounds. There's a bridge off to the right under which runs a stream, and the road stretches off in both directions. While they're all out on this walk, waxing poetically, they hear the sound of a carriage in a hurry. They see it moving very quickly, but then it's soon out of control and it falls over in a crash near the drawbridge of the castle. And I know I mentioned this before, but th th there's this very romantic tradition, and I mean like romance novel tradition, to have the protagonist's love interest enter through some kind of accident like this. Huh. And, you know, I think we can find it starting in Jane Eyre. Right. Uh, when Mr. Rochester arrives on a horse. So he's like this knight, but then he's thrown from it and Jane has to take care of him. Right. 
because he's he's strong and then immediately he becomes vulnerable. Back to the future. Exactly. Well, I had this exactly. I had this English <laughs> lit professor in college that collected romance novels that had this conceit in, oh. you know, Harlequin romances. And he just had stacks and stacks of books. You know, the guy comes in on his Corvette and it crashes and then the woman has to take care of him. I mean, it's something <laughs> that has been used again and again. And I thought it was interesting that Carmilla enters in much the same way here. So as this accident happens, Laura covers her eyes, but her father runs to the accident. When she finally looks, she sees the carriage is overturned. When Laura goes over there to see what's going on, there is a stunned young lady lying on the ground and a woman dressed all in black talking very dramatically. Uh, she says, but immediately she broke out again into that theatrical way, which is, I believe, natural to some people. She's a drama queen. <laughs> I love that. The lady is saying that she's got a matter of great importance that she has to attend to, so she must be off. She says, I, I'm going to have to drop her off at the nearest town and then just leave her there for three months because I'm on urgent business and I won't be coming back this way until then. So Laura says to her father, it's like, let her stay with us. Come on. Our castle's huge. We've got room. Uh, the lady refuses at first, but Laura's father tells the lady in black about Laura's disappointment and it would be welcome to have a guest. The carriage is back on its wheels and the horses are being set up and the woman threw on her daughter a glance which I fancied was not quite so affectionate as one might have anticipated from the beginning of the scene. The woman in black takes Laura's father off to the side and has a private chat with him in French. They come back and the woman agrees to let her daughter to stay with them as she travels on. And then she's out of there with her driver and the footman and the carriage and suddenly there they are. They're left with this unconscious girl who's going to be staying with them for the next three months and gets us into chapter three. This mystery girl is lying on the ground. Laura can overhear her asking, you know, where her mother is and where she is. Adam Paradon calms her down and explains the situations and that her mother won't be back for another three months. The girl starts crying. Now, Laura can't see her as she's kind of uh, keeping her distance from all the hubbub. When Laura comes to take a closer look, Madame Paradon tells her to keep back, give the girl some space. Laura's dad sends for a doctor. The stranger rises and is helped into the castle by the servants. Laura waits in the hall as they take the stranger to her room. Then the madam and mademoiselle return, and they are just way into the guest. They're like, oh, she's so pretty, and her voice is amazing, and she's got the dreamiest eyes, and, you know, all that stuff. Mademoiselle asks if they noticed that other lady, and they didn't. And she says, oh, yeah, there was another lady who didn't get out of the carriage, which, and they describe her as a hideous black woman with a sort of colored turban on her head who was gazing all the time from the carriage window, nodding and grinning derisively towards the ladies. Yeah, who's this lady? I don't know, and we're never going to find out. <laughs> she doesn't come back now. up in the story. It's really strange. Well, I'm curious about all of these people, so let's talk about that at the end as well. Uh, the madame also notes that the other servants were totally sketchy-looking guys as well. You know, they look like criminals and, and not typical servants that would work for aristocrats. They hope the stranger would explain more tomorrow, but Laura's father says, I don't think she's going to give up too much more information. He kind of gives a knowing nod. Laura prods him a bit, and he's like, well... I guess I can say. She expressed a reluctance to trouble us with the care of her daughter, saying that she was in delicate health and nervous, but not subject to any kind of seizure, she had volunteered that, nor to any illusion, being in fact perfectly sane. Which is a really odd thing to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's in delicate health, but there's no problem. Yeah, no problem, and she's sane. It's like, well, wait a minute, nobody was suggesting that she wasn't sane. Why did you bring that up? The woman also said, I'm making a long journey of vital importance, rapid and secret. I shall return for my child in three months. 
but in the meantime, she will be silent as to who we are, whence we come, and whither we are traveling. They're not going to find out anything because this mission is secret, and so the girl can't reveal any details. Very convenient. The dad's like, the father's like, this is all pretty weird, and he honestly says, I hope I'm not an idiot, you know, by doing this. Yeah. The narrator talks to the reader at this point, and this is one of the hints, like I said, that it's, the story's not pointed at a general audience, but it seems to be to one person in particular. It says, you who live in towns can have no idea how great an event the introduction of a new friend is in such a solitude as surrounded us. Yeah. She's very happy that the girl's there, no matter what weirdnesses are present. So the doctor shows up, he visits with the patient, he returns and says she's had a shock, but she's in pretty good health. Head on up to see her if you'd like, and of course Laura's really excited to do so. And one little cool thing, the bedroom they put Carmilla in, there's a tapestry opposite the bed. Yes. And it represents Cleopatra with the asps to her bosom. Mm -hmm. A little more foreshadowing from the environment. But here's the thing, when Laura gets up there to see Carmilla, she sees her face, and boom, she realizes that the girl she's staring at has the very face of the girl from her vision all those years ago. The horrifying incident that she had when she was six. Yeah, but as an adult, she wasn't a kid that grew up. It was the adult woman that she saw in her vision is this adult woman that's there with her now. Exactly. And then Carmilla looks back at her and says, how wonderful. 12 years ago, I saw your face in a dream and it has haunted me ever since. Uh-huh. So Carmilla relates her vision. I was a child, about six years old, she says, and I awoke from a confused and troubled dream. I found myself in this room I didn't recognize. I crept under one of the beds to reach the window, but as I got out from under the bed, I heard somebody crying. So she climbed on the bed. She says, I, I saw you. I put my arms around you and I think we both fell asleep. I was aroused by a scream. You were sitting up screaming, it scared me. So I slipped down under the bed. When I came to, I was back in my nursery. So it's like the opposite version of the vision that Laura had. Carmilla says, I don't know which of us should be more afraid of the other. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and Laura is very put off by this. But Carmilla's on this charm offensive right away. Yeah. She says, if you were less pretty, I think I should be very much afraid of you. But being as you are, and both you and I are so young, I feel only that I have made your acquaintance 12 years ago and have already a right to your intimacy. It seems like we were destined from our earliest childhood to be friends. So she's laying it on uh, pretty thick. She says, yeah. I have never had a friend. Shall I find one now? Carmilla's a little weak, so Laura's going to let her rest. She says, I'll have somebody stay with you. But Carmilla says, oh, no, no, no. Somebody broke into our place a long time ago. We got robbed. The servants got killed. So it freaks me out. I, I sleep alone in a room and I lock the door. So Laura leaves her. She says, good night, dear friend. And Laura's feeling really weird about this quick affection that Carmilla's got for her. Mm -hmm. She says, young people like and even love on impulse, which is true. Yeah, sure. When the next day they hang out again, she says, I was delighted with my companion. That is to say, in many respects. So she ends up liking her. Yeah. <laughs> but in the next chapter, we're going to find out what these things are that she's a little weirded out by. And this chapter is called Her Habits, A Saunter. This <laughs> is like my favorite <laughs> chapter title. Yeah. She describes Carmilla. She's tall. She's slender. She's graceful. But her movements are very languid. And here you see some similarities to Lucy from Dracula. Yeah. That sleepwalking, languid, pale woman kind of description. She has beautiful, thick, long hair that Laura says she loves to braid and play with. Yeah, there you go. Like you said. But I just love this idea of Carmilla being just really languid, just lying around a bunch <laughs> and, and being dramatically tired all the time. You know, like, could you... Change the channel for me. I couldn't possibly bother with the remote. <laughs> I, it's appealing to me because I, I like reading stories where everybody's laying around a lot. Because <laughs> it's kind of what I'd like to be doing. <laughs> well, just the dramatically languid. I can't be bothered to drink. Would you pour that water into my open mouth? You know, kind of like this really <laughs> decadent laziness, almost like hedonism bot. I honestly think of hedonism bot all the time. So I can't really say that the story provokes any more. The normal. Yeah, you're always thinking of hedonism, but there's a comparison I wanted to make of the story to Futurama a bit later. Uh, so I'm glad you brought hedonism. <laughs>
but up. But the things that she doesn't like about Carmilla, well, primarily, it's that Carmilla won't spill the beans about anything. Yeah. Where she's from, what they were doing. And Laura knows the deal from her father. She's not supposed to say anything. But they're best friends now, and it's really tough yeah. for her to not get the information. All she can learn about her is three things. First, her name was Carmilla. Second, her family was very ancient and noble. Third, her home lay in the direction of the West. Spain, maybe? That deserted Karnstein village is in the West as well, but... Well, yeah, but Spain is in the West. That's true. A lot of things are in the West. <laughs> <laughs> now, some of the dialogue in this book is excellent. Laura talks about how Carmilla would put her off when she was asking too many questions about her background. And this segment is typical of her evasions. She used to place her pretty arms around my neck, draw me to her, and laying her cheek to mine, murmur with her lips near my ear, Dearest, your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds with yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die die sweetly die into mine i cannot help it as i draw near to you you in your turn will draw near to others and learn the rapture of that cruelty which yet is love so for a while seek to know no more of me and mine but trust me with all your loving spirit and when she had spoken such a rhapsody she would press me more closely into her trembling embrace and her lips in soft kisses gently glow upon my cheek. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die. <laughs> die sweetly, die into mine. I cannot help it. As you're near to you, you and your turn will draw near to others. In the rapture of that cruelty, which is yet love. Huh? I'm sold. All right. You converted me on it, bud. I will say that I read what Carmilla was saying there at least five times and I felt kind of dumb because I had no idea what she was talking about. Yeah. And then I read the narrator's next line, which was her agitations and her language were unintelligible to me. <laughs> and like I laughed about it because I was like, thank God. I do think that Carmilla is purposely speaking nonsense a bit because it has an effect. People get confused and they just kind of go along. It's just things like a politician would say where you're using lots and lots of words to get away with saying nothing. Exactly. And then people go, well, that sounded right, I guess. Uh, certainly sounded above my pay grade, so I'll go along with it. Totally evasive stuff. And that's what Carmilla is doing. She's just totally yeah. throwing all the stuff at her, confusing her, and then making her forget what her original question was. Which is good because she also is loving her up. It's interesting. Laura comments on Carmilla's embraces. Mm -hmm. She says, I kind of want to get out of them. But then I find myself hypnotized and unable to do it. There's some good writing here. It says, in these mysterious moods, I did not like her. I experienced a strange, tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable ever and anon, mingled with a vague sense of fear and disgust. I had no distinct thoughts about her while such scenes lasted, but I was conscious of a love growing into adoration and also of abhorrence. I know this is a paradox, but I can make no other attempt to explain the feeling. I mean, you're really getting this direct lesbian relationship here in the yeah. book. It's not masked or hidden or Carmilla is a predator and Laura is expressing maybe I'm into this, but I'm not sure if I am into it. Well, that could be the thing, too, is where there obviously homosexuality is not something that was necessarily condoned or even legal at the time. Sure. The story is taking place. So maybe that could be her confusion as well It's like she's having sexual attraction to her and doesn't know how to deal with that. Actually, that is definitely going. There's a section later, but listen to this. This is another pretty intense paragraph. Sometimes after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand 
and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with a tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardour of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful and yet overpowering, and with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, You are mine. You shall be mine. And you and I are one forever. Then she had thrown herself back in her chair with her small hands over her eyes, leaving me trembling. The fast breathing is so great. Yeah. I, once when I was a teenager, I was sitting next to this girl on a couch and she turned to me and said, you know, you're breathing really weird. Are you trying to make out with me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was. Of course you were. Laura's wondering... So are we related or something? Because what's going on with this connection we feel? Mm-hmm. She even straight up says, I don't know you. But she also says, I don't know myself when you look so and talk so. And then you you talking about how she's, she's confused about her own feeling. The protagonist wonders, what if a boyish lover had found his way into the house and sought to prosecute his suit and masquerade? Yeah. So this is actually a boy pretending to be a girl. Yeah. You know, I've read in old books about this kind of thing. Right. Which she realizes, no, that's a crazy idea. There are too many things going against it. Mm-hmm. And and that's the Futurama episode. There's one where Leela dresses up as a man. Oh, right. Yeah. Lee Lemon. In order to uh, go through, I think it's an academy or something. And Zap Brannigan is really attracted to him. Right. You yeah. know, and he can't he can't figure out why he feels that way about a, about a lad, <laughs> about a boy. Now, Carmilla's not always this way. It just happens occasionally. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, she's a pretty normal girl. She's always languid, yeah. but fairly girly. And then Laura comments on these other odd habits she has. It says she used to come down very late, generally not till one o'clock. She'd take a cup of chocolate, but she wouldn't eat anything. When we'd go out for a walk, it was just a mere saunter. And she always seemed exhausted. And, other, and you know, would then just return to the schloss pretty soon or just sit on one of the benches. So for her, daylight's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, one day when they're out for one of these walks, a funeral passes by and the people in the procession are singing a religious hymn. And that brings out a really strange reaction in Carmilla. But we should save that for the next episode. We should. We're running out of time and we're not making good progress in this story. It's so no. good. We're talking about it at a much slower pace. We're going to have to pick it up as we go. We will. And I'm sad because there were a couple of things that after this episode that I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. one was that vision at the beginning was it was it a real connection between the two of them that was simply a vision because they're both you know 18 19 in the vision or but we assume carmilla is always 18 or 19 well now they're both they're not both 18 or 19 in the vision she's a little girl in the vision and carmilla is an adult carmilla says when i saw you it's the face i'm seeing now so to carmilla she was an adult as well yeah i think she's totally lying she did she snuck in tried to get her but then she screamed and then the priest came and so she couldn't come back right that's my guess on the whole situation and, you know, there's something that she says much later in the book that might support that. Mm-hmm. I think we could talk a lot more about how Carmilla represents that crazy lover that people sometimes find in their lives. Sure. Somebody who's demands your complete 100% attention all of the time so that you lose yourself in their life. Mm-hmm. Certain personality type. We can talk about that more. But, you know, what I really wanted to talk to you about was the carriage crash and that drop off. Who are these people? We never find out. And also the idea that what they did there is they pulled a con. I mean, that was the impression I got. They pulled a con to get Carmilla deposited in this schloss and it's not the first time they've used this specific trick either we'll find out you know when we were doing dracula we were bringing out all these ways in which dracula is a thug really Mm -hmm. you know at the core there's there's a very mundane criminal aspect to what he's doing and here again i think we find that you know and i but i just really wonder who the confederates are Uh, so maybe that's something folks can write to us about yeah over the next week i want to thank our reader rachel lackey she is amazing 
Uh, I have to say that because she's my wife, but I am also saying it because it's true. She's not my wife, and I'll say she's amazing. And that's it for this week. I'm Chris Leinecke. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. You've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We'll be back with more Carmilla on HPPodcraft.com. HP Podcraft. <laughs>